San Francisco may not have New York's reputation when it comes to launching punk and new wave music, but it did have its own thing going on at the dawn of the 80s, and our guest selector captures it all in his new book about the indie label that brought this local scene nationwide. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Select 5, a pod where you get to know cool people doing cool things through a conversation about five songs that matter to them. I'm your host, Pam Torno, and the Bay Area has been my home for over 25 years. So I always love an opportunity to dig into its musical history. With that in mind, I'm excited to talk to my guest selector today because he's a music journalist who's going to drop some knowledge about San Francisco's post-punk and new wave era of the late 70s and early 80s. His name is Bill Kopp, and he's the author of the new book, Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records, and the Rise of New Wave. 415 Records is the indie label that launched the careers of cult classic bands like Romeo Void, Translator, The Red Rockers, and Wire Train. Those are the ones that got some mainstream recognition, but many others remain obscure and ripe for discovery, and Bill and I are going to talk about some of those bands in this episode. Bill's book centers on the two main players who got this label off the ground, which were Howie Klein, who was back then a concert promoter and local radio DJ, who eventually became a huge figure in the record industry, and Chris Knab, the former owner of the Aquarius Record Store. The book charts the history of Howie and Chris's unsung indie label and its lasting musical impact, and Bill is about to give us a crash course in five songs. Bill Kopp, so good to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi, Pam. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd i like to know what instigated this book. What was it about 415 Records Output that energized you into telling this story? There were some uh, reissues that came out a couple of years ago on uh, a, a small label called Liberation Hall that uh, it exposed me to the, the early 415 material. And I was really fascinated by how much how many artists there were that I had never heard and that I found that I really, really liked. As far as the 415 Columbia era artists, the ones that are better known, those were the the soundtrack of my college years. And so when those sort of two things came together, I thought this would be a a really, really interesting story. I did a a short piece for uh, SF Weekly in November, October, November of... um, year before last. And just in doing a handful of interviews for that, I realized this is a much, much, much bigger story. And it was a story I wanted to tell. Well, I'd actually love to hear a little bit more about your lived experience with this musical, with this musical era in this region in the Bay Area. Where were you living at the time geographically? And I know you were in college, um, but like when this stuff was going on, how how did you discover this music or these bands? I was attending uh, Georgia State University at the time. Uh, we called it uh, the Concrete Campus. It's in downtown Atlanta. There are no dorms or weren't in those days. It was it was a, a, a four year uh, school, but it was uh, mostly a, a commuter kind of school. One thing that uh, GSU had that set it apart was uh, its own radio station, WRAS, which was 100,000 watts broadcasting from downtown Atlanta. And uh, against the backdrop of the really kind of uh, pre-digested, focused group, focus group kind of uh, music that was uh, being played on the commercial radio stations, WRAS was uh, turning us on to things that we might not have known about otherwise. And that was really how I discovered a whole lot of the bands uh, that uh, were, you know, sort of bubbling under in the early to mid-1980s. I think it's just so interesting to talk about how these um, sort of local and regional things were getting out um, to other parts of the country. I, I'm, I'm younger than you. And so I, I, I was not in college at the time when, when all this was going on, I was like in elementary school. Um, but I do remember, you know, 1981, 82, uh, and I was glued to MTV, which was brand new. Um, and so that's where a lot of these same bands that we're going to talk about Romeo void and translator, you know, those, those videos were played over and over again in those early years alongside the more mainstream stuff. 
And so I, you know, I, I, I don't think back then that I connected the dots in terms, like I certainly did not. I was too young and had no sophisticated sense of musical taste at the time. But, you know, I wasn't, I, I, even to this day, I wasn't really connecting those dots that these were all bands from a particular scene. Were you aware of that then? Uh, I, not really too much. I mean, I, would, you know, I would see the uh, the four one five insignia on the label of uh, the records, even though they were, uh, you know, officially on Columbia CBS. The four one five logo was there, so I had heard of the label, and uh, it became something of a trademark for of quality for me at the time, even with my limited knowledge. Um, but one thing that I discovered in interviewing uh, people and and sort of connecting with my own knowledge of those years is that. Um, a lot of the cities or markets, however, however you want to describe them, had their own musical scenes, but they weren't really connected the way that things are now in, in the sort of big sort of monoculture. Uh, because we didn't have anything like the Internet, um, you know, if, if you were in just pick a city, Athens, Georgia, for example, which obviously had a really vibrant scene. Unless you were really connecting with the musicians uh, who were touring in and out of the, the city, or if you would pick up a copy of something like New York Rocker, you were only vaguely aware of what was going on in those other cities. And so they they influenced each other to a much more limited degree than um would happen nowadays. And so, you know, I knew, you know, all the, the, the bands that were gigging in and around in Atlanta. I mean, REM was a local band. Um, but, you know, we, we just didn't know that much about what was going on in other scenes. Unless it was a city like New York, right? Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I think it's interesting how the book is organized. Um, you know, the first part of it is focused on the genesis of the label itself and San Francisco's early punk scene in the years before 415. And of course, lots on uh, Howie Klein himself and Chris Knab's histories, how they met. Um, and then each band on the label from the biggest to the most obscure gets its own chapter. But the whole arc of the narrative follows the path of 415 Records as an indie label and an incubator to these underground artists. And then it's inevitable partnership with a major label with Columbia CBS and that indie to majors, that indie to corporate path is, it's such a familiar one, right? To anyone who likes to follow the music industry, but was there anything, what were the most surprising discoveries as you were doing your interviews and your research? Is there anything that you really didn't expect to learn or anything that you didn't ex expect to play out the way it did? Well, before I started the project at all, I had no real sense of just how um, vibrant the, the the San Francisco scene and uh, 415 roster in particular were prior to the Columbia era. And uh, until I started interviewing Howie Klein and Chris Kanab and, and many, many other people, I didn't really have a sense of just how, what's the word, just how doomed the whole thing was mm -hmm. from the time that they inked the deal with Columbia. Yeah. What's interesting to me is the your book kind of captures two different cusps. Um, you know, there's the, the cusp of the 80s and punk evolving into new wave. And then very, very quickly, these underground artists trying to, well, maybe not all of them are trying to ride the wave, but some of them certainly had that ambition to go, um, to get bigger and so, and to become more commercial. And well, I guess it, so it just wasn't meant for longevity. I mean, would you agree? Uh, in, in retrospect, yes. I don't think at the time, um, you know, I think everyone was pretty much in the moment and you know, I'm not sure anyone really thought uh, that far in, in the future. Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting. I mean, uh, the, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this as we go on, but, uh, you know, the success of one specific band is really what led directly to, uh, the, uh, Columbia deal, uh, the 415 Columbia arrangement. Uh, the other, some of the other bands were sort of swept up in that. And, uh, some were more ready for it than others. Some sort of tried to grab the bull by the horns and uh, 
you know, some wanted to continue the things the way that, you know, they wanted to do them. Others were like, what do you need from us? We'll do that kind of thing. And, um, you know, you, you had, you know, four or five different bands and you had four or five different reactions slash approaches to uh, what being part of the majors meant. Not that I'm asking you to divulge anything that was told to you off the record, but were there, were there any interesting tidbits that you learned that didn't make it into the book that just kind of felt like they didn't really fit in the narrative, but they were just surprising discoveries? Not an entire book's worth, but yes, there, there, there's a lot of, there were a lot of little things. Um, some things didn't go in, uh, simply because they were, um, you know, I found them fascinating, but thought that they just diverged too far from the the arc of the story and would have just been distractions. Uh, there were uh, a, a couple things where um, a couple stories that I was told um, were, shall we say, suspect, and um, I. I uh, heard from other people as I tried to do a little bit of fact checking, uh, people like, yeah, no, no, that, that, that's not right. That didn't happen or, you know, or didn't happen that way or things like that. And so, uh, those I left out. Um, there were a number of, of things that are in the book where, uh, you know, the Rashomon effect took, uh, you know, worked into things where, you know, this person remembers it this way, this one remembers it that way. And, and almost everybody I talked to reminded me of just how many years ago all this all happened. And uh, so people said, hey, you know, I'm a little hazy on some of the details. Um, I think even when the specific stories don't line up 100%, the, uh, the, you know, the, the larger themes uh, pretty much I think everybody agrees on. But yeah, there, there were a couple little tidbits that were left out. Nothing that would have... Um, uh, n- nothing that was left out is something that um, I, I think anybody would miss. Yeah. There, you know, gossip, that kind of thing. I see. So, well, what was the consensus amongst everyone that you interviewed about what made the San Francisco scene unique to what was going on in other cities? What was different about the music coming from here or the people um, than, say, New York or L.A. or London well, it's, I, mean, I interviewed 96 people, so um, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily um, a consensus, but there were some 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 themes that the an overwhelming majority did agree on, and uh, in many cases, many cases they would point it out to me without prompting. And one of those was that the uh, the, the San Francisco scene, in in their view, was, and this is a dangerous word to use because it, it may have some negative connotations, but it didn't in their usage. Um, A number of people described the scene as kind of provincial. And it comes back to what I mentioned before about, uh, you know, the the people who were making music in San Francisco a lot of times didn't know what was going on in L.A. musically. They didn't know what was going on in, in, in New York City or you know, wherever, whatever city you might want to pick. Um, the uh, the other thing that came out, which kind of uh, goes hand in glove with that, uh, and this especially was uh, emphasized by the guys in Translator, is that the San Francisco scene, because the guys in Translator, they, they relocated from L.A., um, right. as as did uh, the, the guys in um, Red Rockers. But um, the, a lot of people described... The, the the music scene in the Bay Area of that period as more um, egalitarian and less competitive. The the phrase art for art's sake came up a couple times. Uh, people seem to be doing their creative thing because they felt the creative impulse to do it, not because they were trying to score a deal. Yeah. There was a lot of that. That's great. And I, I know that I noticed that um, a lot of the members of the different bands were also students at the San Francisco Art Institute, too. Yes. And um, I, I think especially in the case of the Mutants, one of the uh, the earliest bands on 415, that artistic sensibility really informed um, the, the whole aesthetic. Uh, you see it a lot in the... Um, 
the, the, the concert posters, which when I started seeing all those, the, the collection of concert posters that, uh, from that era, uh, I was amazed at how similar they were to uh, the posters that were all over uh, telephone poles and whatnot uh, in Atlanta, where I was at the time. Um, the same kind of uh, Xerox art, you know, cut and paste kind of thing. Uh, but that whole that whole DIY aesthetic was, uh, you know, it was born of necessity. Nobody had mm-hmm. any money, and um, anybody who got involved with four four one five, it's not as if they got any uh, a big advance or or even a small advance for that matter. Um, so yeah, there was that 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 was kind of consistent throughout as well. So this scene also would not exist without the gathering spaces, the clubs where these bands played, and most, if not all of the ones you mentioned, are gone. They no longer exist. Places like the I-Beam, the Savoy Tivoli, Valencia Tool and Die, the back door. Uh, the biggest and the most important one, of course, was the Mabuhai Gardens, or the Fab Mab or the Mab, which used to be in North Beach. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, uh, this was basically San Francisco's CBGB. So much has already been documented about this place, so I already knew about the Mab before I read your book. Um, this was a Filipino restaurant by day, but by night, it was a very popular live music venue for the punk and new wave acts of the time. Um, and I would, I have to say as a Filipino American, this is a huge access point for me. To me, it's what makes this scene so uniquely San Franciscan. The Bay Area is home to a huge Filipino community. And if you think about it, it's not that unusual at all that a Filipino restaurant would host a burgeoning punk scene. Um, and, uh, you know, I, Nessa Kino, the owner of the place was, he passed away, I think in 2014. Um, I, I, you know, had he been alive, I, I think I would have loved to have read his perspective in your book too, where there are a lot of people who, um, it sounded like a lot of people were very appreciative and, uh, just really honored that, uh, the map. Yes, yes. The, the MAB was was ground zero for uh, the, the the punk and new wave era, uh, scene of that era in the Bay Area, and uh, Dirk Dirksen, who was uh, the MC for the MAB, was uh, you know a, quite the colorful character. And uh, yes, if if I had been able to talk to uh, Dirk and if I had been able to talk to Ness, that certainly would have added a lot of the book. Sadly, they're both gone. But um, I did speak to a lot of people who uh, knew them and came into a, a regular contact with them. And, um, you know, their, their, their contribution to what happened uh, musically is, is, is pretty serious, pretty major. Okay, I don't want to hold this back any longer. I'm excited to get into these songs. Um, so these are all songs that are of personal significance to Bill. Uh, but they also give you the, the, you know, the broad strokes of what 415 Records was about. Um, and I want to thank you because most of these songs were completely new to me until I read your book, including the first one that we're going to talk about, which is called Drive-In from a band called Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. So this one is one of the earliest releases from 415 Records from 1979. Um, and gosh, just what a great tune. It's it, To me, it's it's sort of new wave at its finest. What's your take on this song and the, and the story of this band? Was this, was this one of the ones that you didn't know before you started researching? This one I knew. Uh, Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, I've, I've, I've enjoyed their stuff for, for a very, very long time. I, I can't remember the first time I heard drive and i don't think it was in 79 but it was probably in 81 82 um something like that the uh the fascinating thing about that band and they didn't last very long um was that they really combined two very very different musical sensibilities um you know it's sort of a, a you know a, a a perfect combination of two different things that was kind of doomed to not last because of that. Uh, Pearl E. Gates, uh, AKA Pearl Harbor, uh, had been a dancer with the tubes and had been one of the uh, vocalists in Leela and the snakes. Uh, she didn't, uh, she was kind of underutilized in, in those things. And so, uh, you know, wanted to get out and, and have a band of her own. And so she hooked up with, uh, Peter Bill, AKA Peter Dunn and, uh, the Stench brothers. Um, 
the the band, the three musicians, had jazz fusion. Uh, funk prog inclinations and uh, Pearl's a rock and roll and so when you put those two things together along with the uh, the raw rough and ready uh, production uh, an early early production by David Kahn uh, you got driving which is both really really catchy in a kind of highly polished, uh, new wave kind of way, but still rough enough around the edges to be exciting. And then it's got this gonzo guitar solo in it, which just, it, it sounds unlike, you know, it's a little bit of, of sort of atonal jazz scronk. And I just love it. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's, you know, it's funny because, uh, well, the way you talk about it in the book is um, that's what Pearly Gates talks about is, you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to do rockabilly. I wanted to be rock and roll. And they were playing what she calls it. Did she say this jazz fusion, jazz fusion shit? Um, yes, she called it. Yes, yeah. So, but I, I mean, for that brief shining moment, it really, really worked. Um, and apparently that was recognized already by a major label. Like weren't they, they were sort of poached by Warner Brothers. Maybe poached is not the right word. Maybe you tell it. I think poached is a perfectly apt way to describe okay. it. Uh, well, well, here's the thing. Uh, Howie and Chris knew that, Howie Klein and Chris Kanab, uh, they, they knew that they had very limited resources. They knew that they didn't have, especially in those early days in 79 for, for sure, uh, they didn't have the wherewithal to take these bands to the next level. Uh, a lot of the, the A&R decisions made uh, were, were made by the, the brain trust of Howie, uh, Chris, and, uh, and uh, David Kahn, the producer, the, the unofficial house producer. Uh, so the, um, the roster kind of reflected bands that they liked, bands that they were friends with. Um, so they knew that they didn't have a way to take uh, Pearl Harbor and the Explosions to the next level. So the idea of releasing these singles, and a lot of the early 415 output was singles and EPs, was, hey, let's get them noticed, and uh, maybe this will give them a boost so that they can uh, get on a major label. So when Warner Brothers came along and wanted to, to, to sign uh, Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, uh, as Howie tells it, he was very, very happy. What he wasn't happy about was when Warners turned around and said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing from a, a quote from Howie, Howie here, uh, they said, hey, Howie, you know that, that uh, room full of 45s that you've got in those cool picture sleeves? You can't sell those anymore because now Pearl Harbor and the Explosions are um, a Warner Brothers artist. Uh, Howie heard that basically told them to go straight to hell and continued to uh, sell those 45s. That's amazing. It must have been scary, too, to take on a big, a big, um, probably heavily lawyered up uh, <laughs> label and to continue selling records. You know, this is just my sense. And I, I, I you know, I, so I have to be careful. But my sense is that Howie and Chris were um, good intentioned and just naive enough uh, not to realize just what a risk they were taking in doing things like that. Yeah. Um, it, it, well, it sounded like they didn't, they went into it not knowing a whole lot of stuff about running uh, a record label. Um, I, I want another hilarious tidbit from your book is just the contracts that they had some of the artists sign were literally like what? three sentences long <laughs> yeah three lines i think there's a, a facsimile of one of them in there the the mutants contract which was just typed up and it's it's three lines and there's a place for them and it, you know it's it's you know it's a, a handshake deal uh you know there's it's it's completely unlike um anything that you know a, a major label would present a band with no, I'm I'm sure those contracts are probably like reams and reams of paper or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um so but getting back to Pearl Harbor and the explosions and um their uh you know their short life because of the irreconcilable musical differences between them. Um what's funny is that by the time they got to Warner Brothers, they had one album and then and then they broke they immediately broke up after that. Right. They pretty much broke up on tour. Um, as, as Peter Dunn explained to me, the decision was made 
toward the end of the tour that they were going to go their separate ways. And uh, they decided to, to, to finish up the tour. And then that was it. Pearl uh, moved to the UK, added a U to Harbour to, to make it the British spelling, and um, started working with uh, members of The Clash, married one of them, and um, made uh, a solo album, which is quite good, but quite different. Um, uh, uh, the rest of the band went on for a brief time as Peterbilt and the Expressions. And um, that was pretty much the end of Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, unfortunately. But they left uh, a terrific, uh, I would almost call it a double A side, that 45. Uh, when they were signed, this, this is interesting, when they were signed to Warners, uh, the label came back to David Kahn, who they were going to be working with again to produce the album, and said, we want you to re-record those two songs for the album. And and as David explained to me he he was incredulous he's like why these are perfectly good songs they said no 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 we want you to re-record them so he did and they're on the album and uh, they're not as good yeah uh when the uh, cd reissues came out thank goodness they were appended with the original uh 415 versions and they just they just have a, a an immediacy about them that the uh the the re-recordings just couldn't quite capture You've mentioned his name a few times, so maybe we should stop and 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 talk just a little bit about David Kahn and where he came from. Um, so he was working at Wally Hyder Studios, which is what it was called then. It's now Hyde Street Studios, um, right. but he was not he wasn't actually uh, an engineer or a producer at the time when he started producing bands for Four One Five. Is that right? Right. It was far from it. He was a a, 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 a graveyard shift phone receptionist. And uh, he worked a deal with the, uh, the, the people who ran the studio. Uh, they would uh, train him a little bit now and then when they had the opportunity. And then they said, you know, in those off hours between midnight and uh, 8 a.m. or so, if uh, the studio is not otherwise occupied, you can use it for free. Wow. And uh, as it happens, most of those early 415 uh, recordings with the exception of the ones that were brought directly to the label already finished, um, those the, the ones that David Kahn did, they were uh, they were cut in those graveyard sessions, uh, you know, graveyard shift sessions uh, for zero dollars. The uh, the understanding being that um, Howie and Chris and the bands would recommend the studio to uh, anyone else, especially anyone else who had a budget. Uh, saying, hey, you know, you should go there and and do some recording as well, and you should actually pay for it, unlike we did. Wow, what a stroke of luck to have <laughs> access to um, an amazing studio like that, and and someone who can get them in that door. Sure, and, and David Kahn learned a whole lot uh, in in those years. Uh, he's gone on to work with uh, you know some slightly bigger names like uh, Paul McCartney, for example. Wow, yeah. Um, all right. Well, bringing it back on track here, um, you know, Pearl Harbor and the Explosions band that could have been big. I feel like that's sort of a recurring theme with a few 415 artists. Um, and I think it applies a little bit to uh, another early 415 act, a band called SVT, which brings us to Bill's second selection. This track is called Always Come Back from 1980. Uh, and from the sounds of it, you would never know that uh, the founding member of this band was the basis for the Jefferson Airplane, one of the quintessential psychedelic bands from the 60s. What's, uh, what's resonating with you about this song? Uh, I've used the word immediacy a couple times already, and I don't have the thesaurus handy, so I'll use it again. Uh, there, there, there's something really, really exciting and, and real about that tune um they they cut a, a a lot of really good songs but i think always come back is probably their 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 finest recorded moment um it just does kind of capture the the energy and and straight ahead rock attitude um as as you mentioned i mean you know jack cassidy um uh, the 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 uh, the the band was fronted by Brian Marnell, who was a, a, a gifted songwriter, uh, singer, and guitarist, and he, the front man. 
uh, he hooked up with uh, Jack Cassidy. Uh, Jack at the time was on hiatus from uh, Hot Tuna, his post Jefferson Airplane band he's had with his lifelong friend Yorma Kalkinen. And uh, Jack wanted to do something different, a little, a little different, a lot different. And so, um, you know, he, he met Brian, heard some of his songs and thought this would be really, really cool. Some of the earliest gigs that the band did, they were actually billed as the Jack Cassidy band. But they changed their name to SVT, uh, kind of a nondescript name, really, named after the, uh, the head of uh, Jack's bass amp. And uh, they, you know, they didn't record a whole lot of stuff. They did a single. They did an EP for four and five. Uh, then they did uh, an album for another label, and then that was the end of that band. I think it's interesting that I, I really like this song and their other hit, uh, "Heart of Stone." You know, these sort of very concise. Um, I would put it in the power pop category, um, it, and I feel like power pop of you know the late 70s and early 80s is already kind of a niche category but it's a niche interest that i kind of have um and i'm just a little surprised because like i like bands like shoes and the records and dwight twilly um i guess you would throw big star in there too you know these are not really necessarily household names but somehow i don't know how svt just kind of eluded my radar and i I'm, i'm just wondering why why are they not included in those same kind of compilations or what, what was it about? Why aren't they more well-known at, at least in that category? Well, a couple of reasons. And I, I think, you know, the, the other artists that you named, I think, I think they fit perfectly into that. I think they would have been a really, really good inclusion on one of those uh, Rhino uh, DIY uh, sets that they put together, the, you know, American pop, you know, American mm-hmm. power pop because they do have that same kind of uh, stripped down uh, straight ahead sensibility of bands like the records and uh, you know, the, the romantics or things like that. Uh, they had a lot of that going on. Um, the, 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 the two reasons that they, I think that they flew under the radar is one that they were on four one five in the pre Columbia days. They were not part of the, the Columbia deal and uh, that the, the band just broke up. It didn't, it didn't stay together long enough to, um, to really do anything else. Uh, but I, you know, it, it, what's interesting, um, you know, I try, I didn't ask the same questions to all the people that I interviewed, but one question that I did ask quite a few of them is out of all the bands and there were 28 or 29 of them, depending on how you count and who you count that were, that were associated with, 415 uh, among all those artists who's the one you think most deserved to make it big uh you know and and had the least success relative to that and without hesitation almost everybody said svt yeah it seems that way so now we're actually going to get into an actual hit song uh for 415 records one that really reached mainstream audiences and that is romeo void with never say never So this was their their first and their biggest hit, but it wasn't their uh, it wasn't their debut. Um, uh, but it's it's just I would put this in the category of like the the sonic um, the sonic wallpaper whatever of my life. Um, and uh, again, it's just one of those things where like I, I've 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 heard this song so many times and I love it and, and without realizing how much I love it. Um, and then I went back, you know, in in prepping for this episode, I went back and listened to their debut album. It's a condition and it's actually great. And I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't uh, dive uh, further into this band. No, uh, never say never sounds like nothing else of its era or certainly when it came out, it sounded like nothing else. It was certainly like nothing else on the radio. Um, It's, it's really, I mean, for people, uh, for a lot of people, that was their their first exposure to Romeo Void, and so they could be forgiven for thinking that, hey, this uh, this vocalist, whoever she is, she doesn't sing exactly. She sort of talks her way through songs, you know, a la Lou Reed or something. Um, 
Certainly that wasn't the case. She was a fine singer. But uh, on this particular song, the, you know, the delivery to get across uh, her lyrics was were the, the most effective way to do it was to do it in a sort of a speak, sing kind of manner. And um, it was a very, it, the song really stands apart from so much else what was being heard in those era in those days because it's 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 very feminist it's very sex positive it's very different it's different and it also got the attention of uh rico kasick who uh i guess he he was the one who produced the never say never ep is that right yes he did uh they uh the the band was on tour they uh, they met rick and uh rick said i'd like to bring you back to my studio to uh do some recording. And so that, that one, that, that EP was recorded in, uh, in Boston. And so they, they did that. And the, the creative and artistic success of the, the, the song was so immediate that, um, that, well, they needed to go to the next level. You know, the, the, uh, their manager who at the time was uh, Sandy Perlman, Who's pr- probably better known as uh, w- through his association with uh, bands like Blue Oyster Cult, uh, but and he was sort of a, a friend and mentor of Howie Klein's from way back in the '60s. Uh, Sandy was pushing uh, Howie to, you know, to to do some sort of a deal with a major. And what was happening is the the, the major labels were were coming around, sniffing at the door, uh, interested in four one five artists. Um, and, but what they all wanted was to just sign Romeo Void. Yeah. Uh, and so Howie and Chris kept turning them down, saying, that's not what we want. We want a label deal. We want to lift all of our artists uh, into the next level, not just one. And so, uh, but it was more than anything else, the Never Say Never uh, single and EP are what led to the Columbia deal. Well, but and it didn't actually translate to, and I guess we can talk, this is probably going to thread through the rest of the song or, you know, the rest of our discussion here, but um, it did not really translate to financial success, I guess, for for the band itself. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm wondering how much of that is, um, there's what you think you want, and then when you actually get it, it's, it's... (laughs) It's a big disappointment. Perhaps they they thought that these bands would become successful um, in other way. But it, I mean, I think it's just an example of of a, a big label kind of taking advantage of, oh, yeah, of yeah. smaller artists. Yes, I think so. Uh, a couple things, a couple different forces were at play. Um, bands like Romeo Void were touring in a station wagon and maybe even sleeping in a station wagon. Um, they, they needed tour support and, you know, bluntly speaking, that meant money. And so that was what everybody understood what a major label deal would provide. And, and it did to some extent, I mean, you know, they did get some tour support and whatnot from uh, Columbia CBS. Now from the other side, Columbia, CBS, and other labels had pretty much ignored a lot of what was bubbling under in terms of punk and new wave uh, around the country. And it's only when it started making what looked like some sort of commercial inroads or hinting that it could, that they started taking interest. And they thought basically, uh, I'm, I'm projecting a little bit here, but based on everyone that I've, uh, what I've found from talking to people, uh, the thinking at the major labels like Columbia was, well, rather than try to cultivate this, let's just sort of co-opt it. Let's just buy some, some you know, buy our way into this niche market, if you will. And so what they did is, you know, they said, okay, great, we'll 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 sign up, we'll sign, we'll have these bands like Romeo Void, Red Rockers, Translator, and so on. And um, you know, we'll throw the album out there, we'll throw a little bit of money at it. If it takes off, great. If it doesn't, We'll drop it like a hot potato. We'll ignore it. and We'll move back on to focusing on our other artists like Barbara Streisand and Billy Joel. Yeah. Um, well, so I actually, I want to, moving on to your fourth selection, because I think this is one uh, that I feel like did not have commercial appeal. <laughs> um, you don't think so? <laughs> no, well, 
<laughs> one could argue, I suppose. Um, but this is unquestionably a product of the Bay Area, a punk version of the Grateful Dead's trucking. So this is a band called the Papa Pies, uh, though calling it a band is a bit of a, a misnomer, I guess, because it was really more of a revolving door of players who backed a musician named Joe Callahan. It's it's hard to tell just, you know, listening to it the first time if if this is kind of a teardown or a parody of the dead or not. But it's my understanding that he was actually a fan, right? He was. Uh, Joe Callahan or Joe Papapai, as he prefers to be known. Um, uh, it's, you know, I, I asked him, I said, you know, is this a piss take of, of the dead? And he's like, no, and I really liked it. I, I definitely, I was a fan and, and I'm, I'm a fan. Um, and uh, Chris Knab told me that uh, when he brought a recording of it to uh, the Grateful Dead to, to get their blessing, not really sure what kind of a reaction he was going to get, uh, they loved it. They laughed. They said, great, go for it. it prob- I mean, I don't know how often that was done back then. I mean, punk was still new. So like having any a punk version of any kind of other genre was still kind of a novel thing back then. Uh, it certainly was. Even more novel is on uh, the EP called the White EP, uh, which it's not white. It has a bunch of pot pies on the cover. Yeah. Um, uh, there is another version of Truckin', and that one sounds, if it sounds like anything else, it sounds like Rapper's Delight. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm trying to place, you know, where, my, my whatever, my you know, my my opinion of these bands, <laughs> my opinions on the music is, is kind of besides the point. But, um, you know, I, I'm just trying to think of like, what am I, what is the takeaway from the Papa Pies? It's punk. But it's certainly not political punk. Um, it, it doesn't seem like there's a message other than the message of like we're kind of tearing down institutions or, or um, tearing down your sacred cows, um, and and just having fun. And 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 there's some validity in there too. What 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 do you what is your take on the Papa Pies? Uh, they, they were irreverent. Certainly, uh, there there were some. Uh, you know, there, there's a song about uh, fascists on the EP, and um, fascists eat donuts. Yes, fascists, fascists eat, eat donuts. donuts. Yeah, right. And there was also one called "The Catholics Are Attacking." That one's pretty catchy. Yeah. Yes, that's pretty catchy, uh, and that's almost got a little bit of a reggae thing happening in it. It was all over the map. Some of the, you mentioned about uh, the Papa Pies being a revolving door. At one point. Um, the lineup of the Papa Pies and the lineup of Faith No More uh, was all the same people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and I can yeah. hear uh, that's sort of like the proto, I guess, it, what what would eventually become sort of rap metal, um, or which is kind of what Faith No More was in those early days. Right. Um, I do want to transition to uh, our fifth selection, um, we've talked about this already, but you know the, the whole transition to the majors, which is a huge thing for bands across the college radio landscape at the time. Um, so for your last selection, we're going to fast forward to 1986. Uh, and this is deep into the major label years, the Columbia years of 415 Records. And you chose a translator song. Uh, this is a song called I Need You to Love. This is an interesting selection because it's not their most well-known track, right? Which is Everywhere That I'm Not. Love that song from their debut album. Uh, It's actually from their last album, which is called Evening of the Harvest. Uh, Bill, do you have sentimental reasons for picking this track? I do. I really do. Um, More more so than pretty much any other other album, uh, Translator's last album, the Evening of the Harvest, is uh, it takes me back to my college years. I'm not by nature an overly nostalgic person, but, um, you know, 86 was a good year. And um, 
this I, I put that record on and it takes me right back there. Um, something about I Need You to Love is just it, it. I think, you know, I like all four of the translator albums from that era and the EP. Uh, but I think that the fourth album captured their essence in a way that that the earlier stuff didn't quite for me. I mean, I, those were great records, but uh, the fourth one, produced by the great Ed Stasian, who by that point had worked with the Ramones yeah. and the Talking Heads and uh, the Smithereens and a lot of really, really, really good bands, um, he really captured what was special about the band. It was uh, most of their records were recorded, quote unquote, live in the studio with minimal overdubs. But I think that of of all of their records, the fourth album is the one that really, really captures uh, the excitement of that. Part of that has to do with something that um, a, a production decision that Ed, working with the band, made, and that was to uh, you know the, with the the two guitarists when they would play leads, he would um, pan them into the left and right channels. Uh, and the only other band I can think of that really did that a lot was Television. Okay. And um, so for me, that's, you know, not to get too far into the weeds as far as production, but um, there's just something about the feel of that album that's really exciting. And at the, the end of that guitar solo on I Need You to Love, the, the, the final couple notes that are played, to me, it sounds like the guitar taking a deep breath, going, <gasps> you know, like it's out of breath after just this screaming solo. And it's just, it's really exciting. Yeah, when I hear this, um, I'm again hearing you know that that larger narrative um, and and the 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 hallmark production techniques of the mid '80s, and to, you know I'm hearing this you know this is an alternative band uh, that's flirting with more mainstream rock sounds that that trademark reverb on the drums from from the mid '80s. It, um, in many ways, it reminds me of an album that I listened to a lot um, at the time, uh, and and I guess a band with a similar uh, a similar story arc, uh, The Replacements, um, and their album Please to Meet Me, and mm-hmm. the same kind of the same kind of production on that drums, and that's what I'm hearing here. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the dynamics between Columbia and Four and Five a little bit more during this time, because we're we're actually nearing the end of the road for the label as we knew it. Yes. Uh, we, we spoke about the Papa Pies a little while ago. Part of the deal that there was between uh, Columbia and 415 is that Howie and Chris could sign anybody they wanted to to 415. And, but if they brought them to Columbia, Columbia could either thumbs up or thumbs down. And in the case of the Papa Pies, they said, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. There are a few others, really, really good bands like Monkey Rhythm and the Uptones that they also passed on. Uh, bands that I think did have some commercial potential. But that notwithstanding, um, the relationship really had soured. Uh, Howie knew that um, there there was just nothing going on in terms of um, Columbia really supporting these, you know, these bands. They had kind of thrown a little bit of money at them, as I mentioned before, and uh, when the records didn't take off in a major, major way, they just moved on. Uh, at one point, Howie went to one of the higher ups in marketing at Columbia and said, you know, why can't I get more um, marketing dollars or more marketing effort put towards one of my bands? And he was told uh, point blank, you pay me a bunch of money and we'll, we'll do some more for them. You know, basically you give me a huge bribe what? And uh, we'll and we'll put and we'll put some more uh, marketing muscle behind these bands. Otherwise, get out of my office. Wow. And so yeah, and so Howie was very very disillusioned. He knew the the uh, the end was near. He was burning out. Chris had already sold his interest in four one five, and uh, and gotten out of the business completely. Um, it's worth noting that by this point in the story. Uh, uh, Translator had broken up, although they they would get back together. Uh, Rummy Avoid had broken up. Uh, Red Rockers had broken up. Uh, Let's see, who else am I missing here? Um, Until December, one of the late late, uh, signs uh, had imploded. Uh, There were no bands left. And so uh, 
Howie basically decided he wanted to he wanted to sell his interest out, but Columbia had a, a key man clause, which essentially said if Howie leaves, they have the option of just uh, dropping the whole thing, and that's what they did. Wow, all good things must come to yeah. an end at some point. Um, there's yes. obviously so much of the story that we did not talk about because there's just not enough time in my podcast. Um, but also that's to your benefit because now people will hopefully read your book and get the full story. Um, before we close things out entirely, um, I just wanted to shout out just one honorable mention, a personal favorite of mine, which you talk about in your book, which is Rocky Erickson and the aliens and his album, the evil one. Uh, this one's kind of an outlier because it's obviously not part of the punk and new wave scene. Um, but just the story of how this album was produced and I was just fascinated by that chapter, the making of the album with Stu Cook, who's the bassist for Creedence Clearwater Revival, and just the the, the challenges he faced, because um, Rocky um, is was famously like in and out of mental institutions, and um, just I, well, anyway, just a great story. Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, all I did was was tell the story, but it's a, it's actually the longest chapter in the book because there's so much to talk about. Um, I'm a big Rocky fan, a big 13 Floor Elevators fan. For my money, the best thing he ever did was that album, The Evil One. It is so, so good. I agree. I love it. Bill, your book was such a fun read. Um, I want to thank you for piecing that history together. Um, and I assume it's it's available anywhere you can buy your books? Uh, yeah, it's available uh, direct from the publisher from from Hozak Books, which is itself a, a cool indie label. Yes, exactly, um, and uh, available yeah from your all your online type retailers and uh, in select bookstores. Amazing! All right, everybody, Bill's book, "Disturbing the Peace: Four One Five Records and the Rise of New Wave." As we said, it's available for your reading pleasure now, um, and. You have also created a companion playlist with even more songs from the 415 catalog, naturally. So we will share that uh, link with uh, our listeners in our show notes, along with other reference links. Uh, That's going to do it for this episode of Select 5. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, you should most definitely subscribe so you can stay on top of every new episode we make. Select 5 is producer Kate Sullivan, technical producer Brian Douglas, and me. This is Pam Torno signing off. Thanks for listening.